Hey guys, it's Tana. Thanks for joining me for another episode of Oddity Potity. The holidays are coming up, which means it's time for reflection on what's become of your life. It's a time for gathering with family so they can make you feel like crap for all of your shortcomings. Why aren't you married yet? Why didn't you get promoted this year? Hey, remember that time Daryl dumped you at your birthday party and you cried so hard that you broke a blood vessel in your eye? You don't? Well, let me drag out the old family photo album so I can show you the pics. But the holidays aren't just for reliving trauma. For many, it's a time leading up to the holiest of holidays, the celebration of the birth of little baby Jesus. And for some Christians, this lead-up time includes acknowledging various saints and the good deeds that earned them that title. As far as saints go, a lot of them were saintly from the get-go, exhibiting exemplary behavior seemingly from birth. They were good babies, good kids, good adults, and good geriatrics. But you didn't necessarily have to be 100% good 24-7 to end up immortalized in a stained-glass church window. Nope. Some of the saints that are still prayed to today were downright rotten for a lot of their lives. So if the holiday season has got you down, keep listening. Because today, I'm going to tell you about some super bad saints that'll make your sinning pale in comparison. and sinners. It sounds like they're in two conflicting groups, but in reality, we've all fallen into both categories at some point in life. Sometimes I feel like I jump back and forth between them multiple times in a day. But to truly be considered a saint by the Catholic Church, you have to hang out on the good list for a bit longer than I ever have. But maybe not as long as you'd think. It turns out there are a whole lot of officially canonized saints who are pretty terrible for the majority of their lives. If you Google sinful saints, you'll find a long list of names and stories about people who did appalling things before God showed up and laid the smack down on them. I mean, you could probably do an entire podcast devoted solely to that list. But because I try to keep this podcast to a reasonable length, I picked my three favorite heavenly hellraisers to talk about today. First on our list is St. Augustine. Even though this guy has a beautiful city in Florida named after him, the reality of who he was is pretty ugly. St. Augustine, also known as St. Augustine of Hippo, started out life destined for sainthood. His own mother was a saint and also had a beautiful city named after her. Santa Monica, California is the namesake of St. Augustine's own sweet mama, St. Monica. However, Augustine's pathway to becoming a holy man was more like a rocky road to redemption. Monica was always a devout Christian. Unfortunately, when she was very young, she was married off to an older Roman man named Patricius, who was also a practicing pagan, and he had a rancid temper to boot. In another stroke of misfortune, Patricius' mother moved in with the couple shortly after they were married. Now, I can tell you from experience that mother-in-laws can be challenging, but Monica's was a special type of special. Not only was she pagan like her son, she was also the source of his inherited foul temper. So when Patricius and his mother started fighting and screaming and cussing, all poor Monica could do was hunker down and pray. And what this did was just piss Patricius and his mom off because, like I said, they were pagan. They even got ticked off when Monica did the simplest, nicest Christian deed. Honestly, it sounds like everything just pissed those two off. But still, Monica and Patricius managed to have three children, Perpetua, Navigius, and Augustine. But of course, because Patricius was a pagan, he refused to let them be baptized. 
When baby Augustine fell gravely ill, Monica begged for permission to baptize him for fear that if he died, his soul would go to purgatory. Patricius eventually agreed to this. However, when Augustine showed signs of improvement, Patricius went back on his word and again refused to allow his son to be baptized. In a nutshell, Patricius was a human turd, which is probably 99% of the reason that Monica was granted sainthood because she continued to pray for him and her mean old mother-in-law, no matter how awful they were to her. Finally, one year before Patricius died, something miraculous happened. Monica actually managed to convert him to Christianity. In fact, she was such a successful evangelist that she influenced Perpetua and Navigius to take a religious pathway in life as well. But Augustine was a different story. Unlike his brother and sister, he was lazy, vulgar, and rude. Monica was so worried for her son's soul that she sent him away to Carthage for schooling in hopes that religious maestros there would be able to fix him. But instead, the school taught him about a new religion, which he really dug. Augustine converted to Manichaeism which was a religion that saw the world as a struggle between light and darkness. They believed that the material world is one of darkness, and when one died, they were removed from the world of matter and returned to the world of light. Obviously, this is not at all what the ultra-Christian Monica believed. When Augustine came to visit and he told her all about the Grivini religion, she blew a gasket and threw him right out of her house. Well, this just turned Augustine into a total rebellious bad boy. He thought that no matter what he did in life, it was cool because when he died, he'd just return to the place of light no matter what. No biggie. So he did whatever pleased him without fear of consequence. He and Monica fought over his scoundrel ways, and even though he literally made his mama cry, he refused to change. She finally got him to promise to at least not seduce any married women, but we can't even be sure that he kept that promise because eventually his sins were so epic that he wrote a whole book about it, which was aptly named Confessions. Not to be confused with the album by Usher. By all accounts, this book is a giant chunk of embarrassing TMI, but I'll spare you and just touch on the least cringy parts. In the book, Augustine wrote about his life of crime, which began when he was 16 years old. He and his friends stole some pears from a neighbor's tree, but not because they were hungry. No, instead of eating the fruit, the boys fed it to some pigs. But it turns out that pears are a hell of a gateway drug because Augustine wrote that throwing them away like that, quote, pleases all the more because it was forbidden, end quote. Ooh, and this was the beginning of Augustine's walk on the dark side. Soon after the pear incident, Augustine found a new naughty obsession, girls. About them, he wrote, quote, the frenzy gripped me and I surrendered myself entirely to lust, end quote. He even moved in with a woman when he was young and lived in sin with her for nearly 10 years. Apparently, he struggled with an out-of-control sex drive for the majority of his life. He even got his living girlfriend pregnant and refused to marry her. Having a baby out of wedlock is not a big deal nowadays, but back then it was a huge deal. It pretty much ruined a woman's entire life, and Augustine knew that. He just didn't care. Eventually, the woman got sick of his crap, and she packed up her son and left his sorry butt. About this, Augustine wrote, quote, she was stronger than I. And thank God that social media didn't exist back then, because it would have been quite a shock for this poor woman to see Augustine's status change to engaged right after they broke up. Yeah, about 10 seconds after his longtime love left him, he got engaged to someone else. However, this new love interest was super duper young. And that's saying a lot for the time, which was around 375 AD, a time when some girls are betrothed as soon as they are potty trained. 
Augustine's fiance was so young that he had to wait two years before they could marry, which meant that she was probably about 10 years old. I can hear y'all dry heaving right now, and I am too. But before we get too grossed out, know that Augustine had ulterior motives here. Along with all of his other vices, Augustine had also developed a love for the finer things in life, and his fiancée came from a super rich family, and with that, a super big dowry. So it wasn't just about having this girl in particular, but having the riches that she offered. But like I said, Augustine had a serious sex addiction, so he obviously couldn't wait two years to consummate a marriage with his child bride. So he took a mistress, claiming that he was, quote, a slave to lust. In his book, he said that the lines between physical desire and actual love had become so blurred to him that he no longer knew the difference. Obviously, this didn't work for the child bride's family, and since Augustine couldn't keep it in his pants, the whole engagement was 86. Even though Augustine was a pear thief, a liar, a sexual predator, and a whole lot more, his saving grace was having a mother who was a Jedi master at sales. Seriously, Monica would have won Top Producer Award at Dunder Mifflin every freaking year if she was alive today. In 387 AD, after more than 17 years of nagging him to accept Jesus as his personal savior, Monica's persistence paid off when Augustine finally relented. Not only did he get baptized that Easter, he also had his son baptized and he took a vow of celibacy. With this, Monica could die happy. And she did. Her duty done, Monica died later that same year. However, Augustine's legacy of making his mom cry still lives on today. There are natural springs in Santa Monica, California that are known as the Weeping Springs and are called that because it is well documented that Monica wept every night over her son's hedonistic ways. Thankfully, Augustine didn't backslide and go back to his nasty old ways once his mother was no longer around to guilt trip him. No, he kept his vows and he went on to become a theological philosopher whose ideas greatly shaped the Roman Catholic Church and much of Christianity as we know it today. For example, he created the doctrine of divine predestination. You know, that thing that says everything that happens in our life is part of God's plan? Yeah, that's from him. And from his sex addiction, he came up with the doctrine of original sin, which says that all humans are born damaged by the sins of Adam and Eve. In short, Augustine gave all Christians an excuse to act bad and blame it on someone else. I mean, you kind of got to love him for that, right? Even though Augustine was ultimately redeemed and he did all this great stuff to create a foundation for current day Christianity, it's kind of humorous that he's most remembered for making this statement, quote, God grant me chastity and continence, but not yet, end quote. At around the same time as Augustine was gallivanting around like a heathen, there was a female version of him doing the same thing. In Egypt, a girl named Mary also enjoyed making her parents cry and chasing the opposite sex. The millisecond that Mary turned legal age of consent, which was 12 at the time, she ran away to Alexandria to live a life of sexual conquest. Now, prostitution is often called the world's oldest profession, but Mary wasn't a sex worker. She didn't charge for sex. She gave her body freely and instead made her living by spinning and selling flax. Her every move was driven by what she described as, quote, an insatiable and an irrepressible passion, end quote. Twelve is way too young, but this sounds like typical teenage hormones to me. Mary lived that sex in the city life through her teens and 20s, and it seems like she planned on being a Samantha Jones forever, because when she was closing in on 30, she decided to travel to Jerusalem to party hardy at one of the great feasts that was being held for the celebration of the Holy Cross. Instead of making the journey as a religious pilgrimage like all the other holy rollers were doing, 
she decided to do it as an anti-pilgrimage, planning instead to seduce and corrupt as many holy young men as possible. Again, she did not accept money for sex, but she did strategically choose who she slept with in order to hitchhike her way to the city. Once there, she attempted to enter the Church of the Holy Sepulchre for the big party, but something strange happened. An unseen force pushed back against her, preventing her from entering. No matter how hard she tried to get past this invisible bouncer, she could not get into the club. Suddenly, she was struck with the certainty that the invisible bouncer was, in fact, God, and that her name was not on the VIP list because she'd pissed him off with her scandalous ways. Mary was overwhelmed with shame. Imagine if your dad walked in on you while you were making out with some rando. I figure that's exactly what Mary was feeling. Immediately, she dropped to her knees and prayed to God for forgiveness. In her prayer, she swore to give up sexual temptations and promised to walk the straight and narrow from then on. When she arose, she again attempted to enter the church, and this time, she walked right in with no problem. Later, when she left the church, she heard the voice of the Virgin Mary tell her that she would find peace if she crossed the River Jordan. The next morning, she packed up three loaves of bread, crossed the river, and went to live in the wilderness, trading that whole life for the hermit life. But the thing about the wilderness in Jordan is that it's about 75% desert. So it's not like Mary was able to eat wild game or bugs or sleep under a shade tree every day. More like she was eating snakes and sleeping under the scorching sun while picking sand out of her eyes. What I'm saying is that it was rough, but Mary handled it like a total boss. She lived this miserable existence for decades. Apparently, traipsing through the scorching sands was a popular thing that saints did to punish themselves back then. In fact, there was a whole monastery in the Jordan wilderness that was full of monks who had a habit of spending the 40 days between Lent and Palm Sunday fasting in the desert. One day, one of those monks, this guy named St. Zosimus of Palestine, was dragging himself through the sand when he saw a naked woman. At least, he thought it was a woman. The figure was so sunbaked and emaciated that at first he wasn't even sure that it was human. But when he got close, the figure spoke to him in an unmistakably female voice. It asked St. Zosimus to throw her his jacket so she could cover up. He did, and she put it on, and then began to tell her story and all that had happened to her while living in the desert. At this point, she was about 76 years old, so I imagine it was quite a long story. After she was done spinning her yarn, Mary asked St. Zosimus to meet her on the banks of the Jordan River on Holy Thursday of the next year and asked if he would bring her Holy Communion because she hadn't been able to make those three loaves of bread last 40 plus years and she had nothing to eat for the ceremony. So he did. According to the story, Mary crossed the Jordan River on foot, now being so holy that she was able to walk on water. After Mary took her communion on the banks of the river that next year, she asked St. Zosimus to meet her again in the desert the following Lent, which was about nine months away. So, nine months later, St. Zosimus once again set out for the banks of the Jordan River, a journey that took about 20 days on foot. I mean, you don't reject someone who can walk on water, right? No, you don't. So, St. Zosimus walked for nearly three weeks, and he reached the banks of the River Jordan, where he found Mary lying on the ground. She was dead. Above her head was a note scratched into the hardened sand. It said that Mary had died nine months ago, the same night that she'd taken her final Holy Communion, and that her body had been magically transported to that spot so that St. Zosimus could find her. And that wasn't even the strangest thing about the situation. After being dead for nine months, you'd think that Mary would be in pretty rough shape, but she wasn't. If you listen to the episode I did about Rome, then you know about the Capuchin monks and their miraculous incorruption. 
Well, Mary's body was incorrupt as well. By doing 47 years of penance for her sins, she had become so pure that her earthly body refused to rot. If you think that this story can't get any weirder, wait till I tell you that there just so happened to be a lion moseying along out in the desert for some reason, and he decided to pitch in and help St. Zosimus dig a grave for Mary. This lion probably just thought he was in a giant litter box and was trying to pop a squat. But when he started pawing at the sand, St. Zosimus joined in and soon there was a hole big enough to hold Mary's body. St. Z and Mufasa then dropped her into it and then St. Z ran back to his monastery and told everybody what had happened. Thus began the legend of St. Mary of Egypt, the woman who was happily living that whole life until she was denied entry into the hottest club in town and decided to change her ways. Some scholars believe that the story is so wild that St. Zosimus just made it all up, which means that he could be an unofficial number three on my list of sinning saints. I mean, this is one whopper of a tale, and everything we know about Mary came from St. Zosimus' mouth. And all we know of Zosimus' life comes from another monk at the monastery, the one who listened to the tale and wrote it all down, this guy named St. Sophronius. Since there were no fact checkers back then, we have to take Sophronius' word that all this stuff actually happened. Mary of Egypt is the patron saint of penance, or doing stuff to repent, like saying a bunch of Hail Marys, or fasting, or other acts of self-denial and flagellation, such as running around naked in the desert for 47 years without sunscreen or snacks. I feel like that was a heavy penance for just being a boy-crazy teenager, but who am I to speak against the will of God? I better just shut up. Before I get struck down with a bolt of lightning, let's move on to our last sinning saint, St. Angela of Foligno. Angela was only recently declared a saint in 2013 by the chillest pope around, my guy, Pope Francis. He did this through a process called equivocal canonization, which means that the pope just decided to declare her a saint, and so it was. Usually, there's this whole official process to canonizing a saint, which includes a lot of meetings and emails and arguing, I imagine. But Pope Francis said not all that bureaucracy and went ahead and used his Pope hand to make Angela an automatic saint. So why was Angela so deserving of the Pope's favor? Well, I'm not totally sure because I haven't asked him, but her story has a lot of parallels to certain people today. Angela was born around the year 1248, and we're not certain the exact date because like any respectable person with vanity, she can lie about her age. She was born rich and had a big, rich family. She married a rich guy and had a bunch of kids, and she paraded them around for social events, but left their actual upbringing to nannies and household staff. Her main focus was socializing and being seen in all the right places with all the right people. And even though she was filthy rich and always had been, she constantly plotted to get richer, scheming her way into more money. Today, she totally would have been one of those nepotism social media influencers of some sort. Basically, she was a medieval Kardashian. But when Angela was about 40 years old, something happened that changed everything. She was struck with the vision of St. Francis of Assisi. If you recall, St. Francis of Assisi is the patron saint of poverty and giving to others, and the saint that the current Pope Francis has named himself after. It's interesting that a woman whose whole existence was driven by wealth and material possessions was visited by the patron saint of poverty, and you can probably imagine what he had to say to her. If you guessed that he told her to drop all her bougie swag and pursue a life of charity, you'd be right. Just to make sure, though, Angela sought the advice of a religious expert who, sadly for her, confirmed what St. Francis of Assisi said. In order to be forgiven of her sins, she would need to give away all of her worldly property and begin living the life of poverty. So, that's what she did. 
And just three years later, her entire family died in rapid succession. Somehow, she lost her mother, husband, and all of her children in one fell swoop, though exactly how they all went out is unclear. Some scholars believe that Angela herself was responsible, that she hadn't really changed, but instead went from being a rich influencer to a poor influencer, like she went from being a Kardashian to an Amy Newman. They suggest that Angela's family stood in the way of this ambition of being the biggest martyr ever, as they took up too much of her time and didn't really want to give up their lavish lifestyle, so she disposed of them. Just took them all out. That's an especially chilling thought, especially for one who's now considered to be a saint, but it's just speculation. The 1200s were a time when entire households routinely perished from the flu, so it's not entirely unthinkable that they all died naturally and left poor Angela alone. Clearly, that's what Pope Francis believes, so that's good enough for me. After losing her family, Angela sold all of her worldly possessions and founded a women's religious order that served the poor. This included not only being a nurse and caretaker of those in need, but also begging on their behalf. That's right, she took inventory of what her flock needed and then parked herself at the local Walmart intersection and begged strangers on their behalf. For a woman who once held the highest position in society and came from one of the richest families, this meant lowering herself as far as she could go in order to help others. She also became sort of a mystic who wrote extensive texts about the spiritual revelations that she discovered through supernatural means. Because of these writings, she became known in the Catholic Church as the Mistress of Theologians. Now, a theologian is someone who dedicates their life to seeking knowledge of God, so I'm not sure if this title meant that she was a female theologian or just considered an adjunct to the male theologians, as back then most women weren't even allowed to read or write, much less learn anything else. This includes Angela, as she didn't actually write about her experiences, but rather she dictated them to a monk known as Brother A, and he wrote them down for her. One of her most noted works that was dictated to Brother A was a book called Book of Visions and Instructions. In it, she talks about the trials and temptations that she went through while converting from a life of frivolous indulgence to one of suffering and hardship. Later, after dictating many more important texts to Brother A to transcribe, her title was revised from Mistress of Theologians to Teacher of Theologians. And I like that one a lot better. At the Holy Holiday of Christmas in 1308, Angela announced to her disciples that she would die soon. A few days later, Christ himself appeared to her and told her that he would be personally escorting her to heaven. Having peaced out and being assured that J.C. himself would be chauffeuring her in a pink Cadillac to the mansion in the sky, Angela died in her sleep on January 3rd of 1308. I've said this before, but we all know that record-keeping in the distant past can be unreliable if not downright fictional. There is simply no way to know for sure if something actually happened in 300 A.D., But when it comes to saints, that's kind of beside the point. Saints are considered to be spiritual guides and mentors. Catholics and some other Christians add them to their prayers and petition them to intercede on their behalf to God. They light candles and place offerings on their shrines in the church. I've said this before as well. This practice is almost identical to the voodoo practice of praying to and giving offerings to the law. Regardless of whether you believe in any religion, The stories of these sinful saints serve a purpose to everyone. No matter how much hell you've raised or how many mistakes you've made, it's never too late to change your ways for the better. But even if you do change, don't expect your family to give you any credit for it. Guys, thanks for joining me today. I really appreciate it. I hope you'll come back next week and see me, same time, 
same place for a little more history and a little more haunt. We'll see you then.